Welcome back to the Own Your Potential podcast, where you'll hear stories from leaders across the globe about how they've taken control of their career growth and lessons on how you can too. I'm Peter Sherba, and today I have the extreme pleasure of sitting down with Rashad Tabakawala, Senior Advisor to Publicis Group, as well as former Publicis Group Executive, published author, educator, and speaker. Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Before we jump into the interview itself, wanted to quickly flag that during the recording of this episode, I had almost completely lost my voice. And unfortunately, it does come through a little bit rough at times, but we appreciate you sticking with us as this conversation is definitely not one to be missed. Enjoy. Rashad, very excited to have you on the podcast today. I've been looking forward to to this conversation for quite some time. Why don't we just jump right into it? Do you mind taking us through your career journey leading up until today? Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me, Peter. Of course. Um, So my career journey, uh, if you include my years of education, uh, began in India where I got a degree in mathematics, um, which is my college degree, so a BS in mathematics. I came in 1980 to the University of Chicago to the business school. Um, and got myself an MBA, and I graduated in 1982. In 1982, uh, I got a job at an advertising agency in Chicago called Leo Burnett, and uh, my job was basically to be in account services, but you started your career in either media or research for 18 months. So I began mine in the media department, and I planned and bought uh, spot television, which is local television and local radio for Maytag and Allstate. Uh, and, um, then I got promoted, um, to, uh, assistant account executive on Procter and Gamble and, um, and spent seven, no, 10 years in account services rising from assistant account executive to account director uh, at Leo Burnett. At which stage, I had the first of what was likely to be a pivotal change in my career. And it was uh, an act of chance, which is the client I was working on, which at that time was a client called Heinz Pet Products, better known as for people who remember um, a uh, brand called Nine Lives Cat Food. It was Morris Cat and Amore Cat Food. Those are the two cat foods. And this particular client decided that for the brand I was working on, which was a high price cat food, that he did not believe in television advertising and wanted to do direct marketing. Okay. And my boss asked me to go learn direct marketing in order to keep the account. And we had a direct marketing group because we had Marlboro as a brand and they used database and direct marketing since television and other advertising was uh, not allowed. And in doing so, um, I learned about direct marketing, but I got fascinated as to why it wasn't working for cat food and for a lot of other categories. Right. Uh, It did work for cigarettes. Uh, It did work for automobiles. Um, It worked for some financial products, but it didn't tend to work for packaged goods. Um, 
And that was because the lifetime value of these products were relatively small um, or each unit price was relatively small. Right. Um, and um, the cost of direct marketing had a lot to do with finding the names of these people. So you bought lists. So I bought lists from Cat Fancy magazine. Then you created materials, which was you bought paper, basically. And you created envelopes and mailings and cardboard things. And then you paid for postage. Right. To go get this thing delivered. And then you got some results, whether someone used one of the coupons that you had sent. Um, and you did some A-B testing and you decided which of your programs or what language or what offer worked the best. And you started again. Powerful, but expensive because you spend so much time finding and reaching the audience. Right. And I love the theory, but I found that the practice was limited. And I lucked into services like CompuServe in America Online. And I said, wait a second, these things remove the cost of postage. They remove the cost of having to make things with paper. Right. They remove the time gap between me sending something and me figuring out what actually happened. And that was the seminal moment in my career where I convinced Leo Burnett to launch the Interactive Marketing Group in 1993. Wow. And then convinced them to take the name of the door and not call it Leo Burnett Interactive Marketing, but buy a two-person company and launch the Leo Burnett Interactive Marketing Group under a different brand name called Giant Step, leave right. the Leo Burnett building, go to a loft. And over the next three years with the colleagues in that company, built it from three to 125 employees profitably and put companies like United and McDonald's and others on the web for the first time. And that started my, the two things that that did was it differentiated me from all the other account people. Right. So all the other account people who were tremendous and good were running accounts. And I had suddenly forked into creating a new business for the future. Uh, the second was I aligned with a trend, which was digital, right? which was growing. Um, and that basically process uh, explains the next uh, 20 years of my career, which were basically doing one of those two things again and again, sometimes right. together and sometimes <laughs> separately, which is helping publicists at which stage publicists bought the Leo Burnett company. And so I started helping publicists either launch new units or acquire new units or do stuff in the world of digital. Right. So those included <coughs> helping in purchasing companies like Moxie and Digitas and Razorfish in unbundling Leo Burnett media into Stockholm and launching companies like Stockholm IP and building publicist media and then helping the group strategy, which then led to purchases of companies like Sapient and Epsilon. Um, and 
in that era, my titles went from, you know, CEO of Starcom IP, which is the digital version of Starcom, being on the board or executive editor of Starcom, to add for a period of time, I was the chairman of Digitas and Razorfish. And then for about five years, I either was the chief strategist and the chief growth officer of the publicist group globally. And then I moved again and saw after a 37-year full-time career at Publicis um, with the guidance, advice, agreement, and help of the Publicis group, I started a second career, which I told them I'd wanted to do when I turned 60. So I basically said many years before I was 60 that at 60, I want to do something different. And years ahead, like I want to do something different. And the different thing is got nothing to do with not liking or wanting to be a publicist. I built my entire career at publicist, but I wanted to uh, control my time more. Right. Which when you are in any service business, it's hard, but when you're very <laughs> senior in a service business between client needs, talent needs, market needs, uh, it is quite, you know, all encompassing. So I wanted to be in a place where I had no clients, I had no one reporting to me and I had no bosses. Right. Uh, which basically meant I started to become a writer. So I started a second career as a author, a speaker and an advisor three years ago. So I wrote a book called restoring the soul of business, staying human in the age of data which came out in Jan of 2020. I uh, write a Sunday Substack, which is a thought letter, which I've been writing for 92 weeks. And the reason I know is each edition is named on the Sunday I write it or right. remembered. So I've written 92 Sundays <laughs> ago, which is on different topics. This week I wrote about culture. Um, last week I wrote about uh, decisions. Uh, right. Before I've written about everything from generosity to dignity to self defeat to whatever, and it's now read. Um, it has just under fifteen thousand subscribers, and it's free at rishad.substack.com. And because of social media sharing inside organizations, uh, very high open rates of over fifty percent, I end up with about twenty five thousand readers for each piece. Uh, and that spans students to CEOs across the world and across all industries, not necessarily limited to marketing, because I don't write specifically about marketing. <coughs> Sometimes right. marketing is more about business and growing one's careers and looking at things in different ways. Um, and then I have a speak, I speak, I speak, I have workshops I run today. I'm in a hotel room in San Marco Island off the West coast of Florida or, uh, where I'm, um, going to be speaking at an event. And then tomorrow uh, I do something else. And then I have an advisory business where I advise startups, private equity, and larger companies like Publicis Group, where I remain an advisor. And in that role, I emcee all of our, or not all of I emcee a, a significant amount of our executive training programs. So I'm sort of the emcee. Those are run by... Right. Uh, the publicist team. Um, I am available to 
senior clients and perspectives like where is the world going right uh, and i <laughs> host a podcast like you do uh, <laughs> called what next which up to now has been internal but sometime by the end of this month will be available on spotify and apple uh, and we've done 62 episodes of what next interviewing different people around the world uh so that's my second career which yeah. is writing speaking advising busy productive but i have <laughs> managed to keep away from um ongoing bosses ongoing clients and yeah. talent though i love all three i don't have them anymore right i mean obviously a very storied career and there's a lot that i want to jump in and, and chat about but I, i'm going to be a little bit selfish with my first question for you because you talked about in the 1980s with direct marketing around yeah. you know buying a list yeah creating or manufacturing some piece of creative sending it to that list and then correlating some impact on ideally sales of whatever good or product or service. It's 2022. And I, I still know of certain clients that are doing that today. And I am just curious to hear from you, your thinking on the fact that across so many decades, we're still doing such similar marketing activities. And I guess I'm curious, do you think there's still a place for some of those marketing activities in certain, certain industries? Uh, yes. So here's what basically happens is three things I've learned <laughs> over my long-term career is nothing completely ever dies. Okay. Uh, it, I mean, we die, but <laughs> the, the, there's still newspapers, obviously much smaller than they used to be. There's still our magazines. Um, and uh, there are still very few people, but there's still people who use typewriters. Okay. But, but basically in the media world, the, the media shift changes. So it continues to make sense for certain industries as part of a omni-channel um, marketing program. What do I mean by this? We have marketers who are intensely um, sophisticated when it comes to the digital world. Um, give you a, one example is uh, Marriott Hotels. Marriott right. is the client, right? <laughs> uh, they have a 164 million person database. Right. Uh, as I speak today, they've launched or plan to launch a Marriott advertising network, combining their physical places, their databases, their experiences. Uh, I get a lot of stuff and I do a lot of stuff <coughs> online, including check-in with keys. But I also get uh, mailings from them. Right. And those mailings are about certain things that have a feel and texture to them that the digital world hasn't yet touched. So for a variety of reasons, they send me, and because I used to travel a lot, I'm in a hotel room today. Right. I'm at the highest level you can be, even though I've stopped traveling much or I still travel, but not anywhere like I used to. Yeah. And so that's called like Marriott titanium elite plus. 
And the card is a metal card that they right. send in a nice little case, right? Once in a while, they'll send me a wonderful coffee table book about right. places. Uh, so they still do that, which is which is which is interesting. And and you want us to sort of recognize because of what I learned that most of these direct mail and marketing people test everything. Right. The fact that you're getting something means it's worked. Right. Right. Or you won't get it. Right. Or it's either working. You just have to be the person who throws it in the garbage, but there's enough people who don't throw it in the garbage or it is something new that they're testing. And maybe when everybody throws it in the garbage, you'll stop getting it. Right. So, you know, we talk about Omnimedia, which is when you think about it outside of like health or other reasons, um, you know, almost everybody pre-COVID and hopefully in the future when we have this under control, uh, and it's definitely going to happen this summer, it has happened last week, uh, people go to movies and they see it in movie theaters and they love to see it on a big screen at home. Right. And they love to, if they have to, they'll see it on their tablets or their phones. Right. Uh, and you say, well, why is movie theater still around? Right. Uh, and especially modern movie theaters. So modern movie theaters, uh, many of them f- forget about like Alamo and things like that. The, th- the screen is not significantly better or bigger than if you've got a 75 or 80 inch screen at home. So if right. you have a 75 or 80 inch latest television at home and you basically have got headphones on at the same time, right. And you're sitting at home. That is Actually, the way outside of people being with you is the way people want, you know, I I saw Dune at home on an 85 inch television set, high definition with headphones. It was a fine. I didn't have to go to. Right. I understand that, you know, the director doesn't want you to see it on an iPhone, but that is pretty, pretty big. Okay. Yeah. But I still would go, you know, to Top Gun. Right. Right. And so that's why I remind people that we're living in an omni media, omni world. We do different things at different times. But right. really, the physical part of direct marketing for most businesses is a smaller portion. But for those that may be a larger portion, like maybe the AARP, which is still a smaller portion compared to what they do, is maybe because of age, demographics. Reach. No, I think that's so interesting just because we're now on the cusp of, uh, you know, a new revolution in technology and, and, and places that we can market or engage with brands, right, in the form of Web3 and Metaverse. And so to me, what I'm understanding is you're of the perspective that we're not going to shift into it and lose things that we've that have previously worked but rather it's going to be one more place that we can engage so for brands you know it just it's another place we can touch the consumer and for the consumer it's another choice for them to make in terms of how they want to engage with a piece of content with a brand i think that that's a pretty exciting thing to know that all of these things can coexist because it means there's a huge breadth of of types of marketing that people can specialize in. Yes. And because there's so many, there's a breadth, just so you know, including, by the way, increasingly even in the digital world where it's no longer necessarily just about Facebook and Google as it's to be, it therefore allows you and me to still have jobs. That's right. For you to have a job. Me to a certain extent, but you to have a job. (laughs) Because as long as the world of 
people's behaviors and people's ways to reach people and ways to tell stories are constantly changing. It's very hard for a company that's not in that business to take it all in-house and do it by themselves. Yeah, that's right. And so, I mean, on that note, let's go back to kind of that initial major technical, you know, kind of a revolution of the marketing space when things were moving digital. And, you know, you at that point had had a number of years successfully, you know, kind of climbing the ladder at, at Leo Burnett. And then you you, you had that opportunity, right, that you saw yeah. and identified to shift to digital and create and found ultimately what was Giant Step. Now, I'm very curious, right? Do you think, uh, walk through kind of what your your kind of uh, strategic process was to how to position that proposal, right, to leadership sure. at an organization to create a venture like that at, at a moment when it was maybe quite risky? So there were four key things that allowed that to happen. Uh, the first one, which is extremely important, was I had been at the company for over a decade and had a good track record. And there was a moment in time when I was in between assignments because I had been taken off my direct assignment temporarily to help the company pitch a piece of business, which we didn't get. But for reasons that had nothing to do with the pitch, it was more that the client liked what we had, but decided that the idea we had was so big, they needed to give it to somebody they had worked with for many years. Right. It was basically IBM. (laughs) IBM asked us to basically pitch their PC business, but they'd asked us to come and have a conversation about the future of technology. Mm. Um, And it was going to be limited to five people. And I was asked to prepare the other four people, which was four senior managers in our company. Right. Native leader, et cetera. And then I'd go and we'd have this conversation. But that required me to both study it, learn it, explain it to senior management, build a case. And we built a case that they should not hire an agency for their PC business, but hire business for all of IBM. Right. They're all going to be connected. Right. So we said, we don't actually want your assignment. Your assignment's the wrong one. <laughs> right. And what they eventually did was they called us and they said, you are right, but we don't know you agency in Chicago. And all the people had basically come in from Amex. So they gave the business to Ogilvy, who they worked with for years. Right. But we had come up with the right mindset, the right approach, the right way of looking at things. Um, and at which stage management had basically asked me, what do I now want to do? Did I want to go back to direct marketing or did I want to go to client service where it started? Right. right. And I said, well, we've done this whole thing about the future of technology. We aren't set up for it. Why don't you let me launch this? Right. Okay. So I had goodwill among management who said, okay, we'll take a risk on this. And you've talked broadly about marketing and technology. We seem to understand there's something there. We don't know whether it's there, there, how far away it is. But if you're willing to spend time and not have a regular assignment and this is your assignment, then go ahead. So one is whenever you launch one of these things, people have to, you have to have a track record or a, a story that people buy. Right. Right. So it's very much like being a starting a company. So either you can convince a VC that you've got a story or a vision or a track record you've created other companies. Now I'd never created any companies, right. but I had a track record of actually doing pretty good work. Right. I seem to understand technology since I built this case, right, with where the world was going. I was not a technologist. Um, and I was 
a senior person who was in between assignments because while we were pitching this, I didn't have an assignment, right? right. I was available. I was interested and I asked and I had a track record <laughs> and that's one. The second, which is the reason we ended up doing it is listen very carefully to what the data is telling you. And very quickly, what the data was telling me was the way I was thinking about the interactive marketing group was intellectually interesting, but from a business perspective was likely to fail. Right. Okay. And the reason it was from a business proposal likely to fail internally inside the company is because if you wanted to do interactive marketing, the money wasn't in the strategy and coming up with the creative idea. The money was in the production. Right. Right. Creating, you know, working with Flash, creating a website. Uh, and that was 90% of the revenue. 10% of the revenue was explaining to clients you needed to do this. Right. But at the very same stage, the traditional business charged as a percentage of spending. So commission. So people spend a million dollars in advertising on TV, you got 3%, right? If you wanted to make a million and you know, people used to spend 20, $30 million in TV, you did 3%, you'd end up with $900,000, right? But when you were basically making websites, which cost $100,000, if you charge 3%, you'd get $3,000, but most of the work needs to be done in creating the website. Right. Um, and, and so I suggested that we needed to have people who were developers and not creatives. Right. <laughs> or rather what next gen, not a different type of creative. They, they made, they were makers, they made and they created. And, and if we didn't do that, we'd basically be recommending to clients to hire other companies to do all the work. They'd get the money, we'd be the recommenders, right? But that group of people, the metrics and the way we charged and how we attracted those people, they would never, we were never able to do it at the Leo Burnett Interactive Marketing Group. Right. Yeah, it's a separate company. So understanding the facts that my thought was right, but that my business model was wrong. Also, so that was the second listing the fact. Third is understanding what landscape you're looking at. And my landscape was my clients were not hiring Ogilvy or they were not hiring gray advertising for this. They were hiring companies like Organic and Modem Media. New companies with new credibility, with new skill sets. And we were seen as the television and radio and magazine shop and these people were seen as the next thing. So I said, I'm going to have a shop that's built like them, like the next thing, because then it's a little bit easier for a client because clients would say, okay, you've got credibility and clients, we had people who were their digital people who did not want to hire who the analog people had hired. So I created right. a company that was separate, but the digital people could hire me, but the analog people could say, but wait, the guy is 75% owned by publicists, right? Or at that time, Leo Burnett. Uh, and I can get integration as necessary, but I can get the best of both worlds. Right. So understanding the business model, understanding the competitive set, being well-regarded, all of those are important, right? And then the most important is telling the story, okay? But you need to have, obviously, credibility with talent. You need to have the right business model. You need to be trusted. But eventually... When you're doing something new, you have to paint a vision of something that doesn't completely exist. Right. And there I basically told the story of how this was the future of 
two things, two-way interaction and deep immersive content, but occurring at the same different times. So the two-way interaction would basically occur primarily on the web, right? And as the web improved, you would begin to have the deep immersive content, which was now existing in CD-ROMs, right? And I said, when you think about America Online fusing with CD-ROMs, you'll have the World Wide Web a few years from now. So we need to start preparing for that world. That was the story, okay? And so, okay, this guy is spinning a story, but let's look at what we got here. We got a guy who has a track record of doing pretty good things. But forget about him. He's not important. He's got all this really in interesting talent in this company called Giant Step who look different, talk different, right? They create stuff. They were seeing the thing that they're basically doing, right? And the company's investing in them because they think it's the future. And it's not just him selling these silly songs, but senior management is coming with him and saying this may be something and we want to think about it. So that was how we basically launched it. And that quadro is always the same thing, which is you'll find people have track records. They have a business model, right? They create a way to attract and retain credibility and talent. Right. And then they tell a story. Right. So, and if you have all four, you tend to do really well. If you have two or three, you sometimes do okay. If you only have one or two, you tend not to do okay. But, and, you know, as you describe that, and I think back to my own time here at, at Publicis Sapien as part of yep. Publicis Group, what you just articulated to me was <clears throat> you have, you know, this end-to-end -end ability of this new shop that looks different, talks different, uh, feels different, and they offer what is the future, but then you have that connective tissue and buy-in from the major player that does the all the complementary things. Thanks. Yes. And now exactly. I think exactly to the model that we've built with Publicis Group, and you see the technology players in the Publicis Sapient, but you still have the Publicis Medias, the Razorfishes, the Epsilons now that augment and all come together and, and kind of allow for that end-to-end -end model. So I wonder if that was the precursor for kind of where we landed now. It was. It's one of the reasons that I was involved, obviously, with a lot of other people in writing the strategy. Right. So we learned along the way, right? So I was experimenting. A lot of people were experimenting. And we were experimenting all kinds of models. We were experimenting models where the tissue was very tight. Right. <laughs> the model where the tissue was non-existent. And we figured out that we needed a tissue that was flexible, that went from somewhat okay tight to somewhat non-existent, but not either completely tight or completely <laughs> non-existent. Right. But which would vary based on the country, the situation, and the client, Got and it. the time. So I'll give you an idea. When I launched the digital media operations called Stockholm IP, it was tighter than Giant Step. We shared a name, Stockholm and Stockholm IP. Yeah. Right. Because I began to realize that in the media business, those things were going to come together pretty fast. And in that particular case, scale was going to work and be matter. And Google would pay more attention to all of Stockholm than just to Stockholm IP. Right. Okay. So we kept it closer. Right. Still different, but closer. Giant Step, we kept it a little further. Right. And similarly today, 
there are companies that are a little closer and a little further, depending on the market inside the publicist group. And there's never a proper model because the reality of it is in the end, you can organize everything, but it's all about people. So if the people decide not to get along and not like each other, you can create any model you want and they'll just spit on your face. <laughs> yeah. And, and so what I want to now ask further, because I think that makes absolute sense is, you know, particularly in a moment where you had this technology boom at your doorstep and you were building something that looked different, felt different, sounded different. You talk about having to attract and retain credible, meaningful talent. But the question is, 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 you know, and this applies to the moment we're in right now, how do you understand what that talent is, right? What is the talent that you're looking for, given that this is something totally disruptive or totally new, right? And, and given that that credibility was so core to your subsequent kind of success, how yeah. are you assessing that talent? So the two ways you assess talent, what is, even though you think you're doing it, you, somebody's already started to do it. Right. So you, you, you know, a lot of these ideas come from seeing other people doing things and then connecting dots in new ways. So in the case of, in the case of giant step, these people were doing it two people in a garage in Iowa. So he said, and I was seeing people like organic and modem. So I said, that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Uh, and then I said, okay, these, they had these type of people. So when you look for a, you know, when you look for people, I have now sort of isolated it down to six characteristics, but I'll even narrow it down to four. Uh, so the first is you're looking for competency and capability in craft. So when you're launching something and you're trying to put someone in front of a client, you can't basically say, I want you to hire me to figure out how to do what you're going to be paying me for. Right. They'll say, why are we paying you to learn on our dime? Do you have anybody who actually knows how to do it? So you hire people who have craft or that's number one, competency. So, you know, if someone basically put me in front of someone and says, okay, this guy's going to talk to you about, you know, database marketing and SQL code. They'll say like, this guy doesn't know this shit, right? He knows about something, but he doesn't, he's not a coder, logic writer. He's right. not like a database scientist. He understands the importance of database, but he ain't a database scientist. So within five seconds, you know, a data scientist, let's say like this guy's, what is this? He's a strategy guy. He's not a data scientist. Right. Like, why are you putting a data scientist? I need a data scientist. Mm -hmm. So obviously they need a strategy guy. So me with a data scientist might be fun, but you know, whatever. But the, the reality of it is you you're looking first for craft. The second thing that you're looking for, which is extremely important, is curiosity mm. and curiosity for two reasons. One is the person is now working in a field which is changing. So they have to say, okay, what's coming around? Like, how do I learn the new languages? How do I learn these new platforms? How do I learn these new things? Right. right? So you want not only craft, but you want curious curiosity so you can keep improving your craft. But as much, you're basically, the person is asking, what is the client trying to do? Versus I have this digital whistle that I can want to blow on. Right. Yes. Right. So curiosity on, is the second one. The third one is collaboration. And whether it was in the early days or now, regardless of how amazing you are in your field, you're not the whole thing. Does that make sense? Yeah. Because you're not the whole thing. 
you can't go in and say, hey, I refuse to work with the electrician. I'm a plumber. Everything's plumbing. I don't, I'm not going to work with the carpenter, the electrician, the architect. It's all me. Go. Right. right. So you have to be collaborative because otherwise it doesn't work. And the last of the four C's, so obviously competency slash capability in craft, curiosity, very, very important, collaboration, uh, you know, intensely important. And the third one is communication skills, uh, which is, can you please talk to me in English or can you explain what you're talking about? Okay. You, and, 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 or can you communicate with someone that you don't know what you're talking about or communicate with someone who can explain what you're doing so they can communicate? Because so often some amazing people won't tell you what they're doing and how they're doing it. So you think they're up to some no good. Right. Right. But, you know, if you basically say, here's what I'm trying to do. So communication, it doesn't mean you have to be like a speaker and a writer. It just means you communicate uh, because that helps get along with teams and everything else. It helps on the collaboration front. Right. Um, <laughs> it helps you ask questions on the curiosity front. It helps you explain your craft. Um, and I always look for those four. But if I would, you know, those are the four. And, and then there's, and when you have those four, you pretty much have success. So right. I would go try to look for people who have that. And initially my emphasis used to be much more on craft because I had to build capability. Yeah. But over time I hired more people who were in the curious collaboration communication people. Right. <laughs> because I already, people said, okay, he has that. Now can he do these other things? Right. Um, and those are the things I always ask people to build. And over my career, I've basically tried to build craft, which is I've tried to be very good at thinking about the future, about strategy, right? right. I, it's not like I do it much better than other good people, okay? What eventually then makes the magic happen is I'm curious. So I'm always learning about the next thing. So I'm you know, writing about the future of the internet. So people are saying, okay, that's curious. Right. I'm collaborative, which I work with a lot of other people. In fact, I'm so collaborative because I don't want to do any work. So I want to give it to everybody else. <laughs> okay. So I have to be collaborative. Yeah. And, and then I'm a storyteller because I got to BS my way through this. So it's communication. Right. No, and I love, I love the levity with which you described that, but I think there's a lot of truth to, to, to right. it as well. And I think uh, I, what I really find apt is how you describe maybe where you over index early on when you're trying yeah. to establish credibility. So starting with competency yeah. and then shifting towards the other three over time, once right. you've established right. that. And once you've established but early on, people are basically the hiring specialists. That's right. Yeah. Specialization, why would they hire you? That's right. And so now I'm curious though, because, you know, you basically went for the first 13 years or so of your career at Leo Burnett, focused on growing accounts, growing revenue through a client, building a team to yes. serve a client. Sure. But you were also focused in terms of your own growth on yep. the next career stage. Yep. But now in starting, you know, a giant step, you're now growing an organization. Yep. Right. Which is different. quite different. And your understanding of your own growth is suddenly quite different as well. Can you talk about that transition and how many parallels can you draw to the client executive kind of growth that you experienced prior to that? So there, 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 there's some similarities, but they're very, very different. Okay. And that's probably one of the reasons. I mean, if, you know, if, if that fork in the road, not only aligned me with differentiating me and face it, putting me in 
the world of digital. So I was on trend with digital and was differentiating because I was this a guy who had started something like this. But what it did is it basically taught me the importance of business and that the pressures you have when you're running a company is much more different than when you have the pressures of running an account. Right. In an account, you have already significant pressures, which is you have to look after your client to try to make a PL. But you don't have the following worries. You do not have the worry you run out of cash. Right. Right. So cash flow. Right. You don't have to basically worry about hiring people uh, where every single person you hire in the early days is 5% of your workforce. Okay. If you're a 20 person company, each person is 5% of your workforce, which is pretty formidable. Uh, You do not have to spend time proving when you're an account person, you don't have to prove why maybe these days you would do, but in those days you didn't have to, why are you an account person? What are you doing? Right. In this case, I had to, I had to prove or sell my field. I wasn't selling. I had to convince someone a interactive marketing is worth allocating money for. Right. And I had to convince them that this company was for true. Then I had to convince them that I was good. And then right. I had to do the work, right. right? Versus the latter two or only the latter one. I mean, that's a pretty enormous transition, right? And then to your point, uh, going from three people to 20 to 300 in yeah. a relatively short period of time is pretty enormous growth. So I guess, what did you draw on to ensure a consistent culture and organization, you know, way of working as you scaled so quickly and were embarking on delivering results for clients in something that was, you know, so disruptive, so new, right? So untapped, right? That's a lot of variables to control for. It is. So where I've now come to, and these, I wasn't necessarily doing all of, first of all, I, none of these was, is it me alone? There are a lot of people of working with me. Uh, so there are teams of people and I'm part of a leadership team, whether I'm called president or CEO, I've got three, four other people who are basically as or more. And um, so, and I've done lots of different things and I've tried lots of different models. And what I've distilled it down to is when it worked and is what I actually wrote about this past Sunday, which has been very popular. It's only today's Monday and it's been read 15,000 times. That's where I wrote, I wrote something, uh, it's less than 900, less than a thousand words. And I basically say, how do you manage cultures? What is culture and how do you manage culture? Right. And the reason I was writing it is because part of the reason why people have this whole thing about returning to the office is because they talk about managing cultures. So my whole stuff is like, what is this culture that you're supposed to be managing and how much of it requires you to be in an office versus, right? There's obviously some need to be in person together in some places, but how much and what? So what are we trying to manage? So what is, what, what makes for culture? And and when I read about culture, what I'm often reading is about how to keep people happy. But that is not a culture. So in fact, when I wrote this, someone from like MIT says, we did research and our research shows something different than yours. And I said, you didn't do research on culture. You did research on how to keep people happy. Whoever told you that's culture. 
Right. Okay. Uh, that is a component of culture. But whoever told you that that is the culture, how you have a uh, culture. So successful cultures have just four things. That's it. Just four things. Okay. The first, not surprisingly, uh, which is something that people forget, is excellence. Right. So people keep talking about, you know, I, I want good bosses. I want good pay. I want to feel connected to my colleagues. All of that's important, but what you're designing is a cuddle puddle. Right. Okay. That's great, but you're competing in a world outside. And that seems to be important, but it's not the... Keeping people happy has never proven to me that that's basically the way you actually deliver excellence. Right. It is an important part of it, but that alone isn't it. So to me, the first is a commitment to excellence. And there are three types of excellence you want to commit to. You want to commit, and all are interconnected and they're all equally important. And I don't know which comes first, chicken or the egg, but they're all interconnected. So you have to commit to all three. Excellence of products and services. Excellence of talent. And excellence of financial results. Mm. So my old stuff is, hey, listen, all these, you're talking about companies like a Google, right? How they're keeping people happy and all of that. But hey, listen, people, Google has world-class people delivering world-class search with world-class financial results. That explains their goddamn culture. Not that they basically are sitting around eating cafeteria food and getting massages. Right. You got, the, you got it completely wrong. <laughs> right? So that's one, which is excellence. Right. The second one, which is another component, which is critically, critically important, is a growth mindset. Okay. Right. Which is, again, in all these cultures, are you working in a world which is constantly changing? There's competition and there's no new, new news. And by its nature, by the way, that thing makes you uncomfortable and you don't feel like a cattle puddle, like, like, like clients yell at you, new competitors come in, a war breaks out. What are you going to say? Uh, there's uncertainty. Well, guess what? That's life. Yeah. Okay. So <clears throat> you need a growth mindset, which basically means a culture that sets goals, you measure yourself against goals, you achieve those goals, you learn from each other. When things go wrong, you don't blame everybody else. You say, how can you have improved? And it's, you know, Satya Nadella has talked about it. It's a famous book called Growth Mindset. So you need a growth mindset. The third is clarity of communication, right? Which is where are we, what just happened, and where are we, you know, what's going on. So it's basically being very clear about your intent, what you're trying to do as a company, as a team, as a boss, as a person and transparency about how you plan to do there. So people don't have these soap opera dramas. So clarity of communication. (laughs) Right. And then the last one, once you basically have, you know, the clarity of communication, you have excellence, you have this, growth sort of mindset, the last thing is connectedness. And connectedness is you feel that the different parts of the company <laughs> connect to each other or different teams connect to each other. And that is, div- that is built on communication and incentive systems, not right. like the sing songs together. 
right? right? It's communication. What do you do? What do I do? What do I need? What do you do? What do you need? And then we're incented to work together. You know, so that's a, a big part of it is that connectedness, a connectedness to the external world and to reality and to facts and truth. Companies turn very insular, right? And then a connectedness to something higher than profits that might be, you know, purpose, values, community. Sure. That's what makes a culture, right? Everybody writing about culture talks about how to keep people happy. That's not culture. That's how you keep people happy. Right. Okay. But keeping people happy eventually means you can go broke if you don't pay attention to all the other things. <laughs> and if you pay attention to the other things, people are happy. People want to work for a company that has great other people that creates great products. They know exactly what is basically happening. Yeah. They're allowed to basically grow and they feel connected to each other. Absolutely. That's it. So I read all the books and I said, it's 900 words. You don't need all these books. You Google this, you get six six 6.4 billion results. What the shit? Yeah. Right. So I know that's what I'm doing. That's why my Substacks become very popular. I said, like, come on, this is what it is. What I find incredibly interesting is the word that bubbled up to me out of that, because I think that makes absolute sense between uh, excellence, growth mindset, um, the clarity and transparency, and then also in communication. I think those are connectedness, right? And, and communication kind of underlying all of those things, right? It makes uh, complete and total sense. But the idea uh, around the right incentive system to, to be connected, right? And across all dimensions, whether it's the right incentive system to work together, whether it's the right incentive system to stay current and understanding of what's happening in the outside world, uh, the right incentive system to train and learn to be excellent at what you do, right? To go yeah, above man. and beyond and try and create growth. That I think is really important. And I think that it's lost to your point in a lot of discussions around what people should find satisfaction out of in their job. If they're incentivized correctly to do all the things you want them to do, they're going to do them. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And, you know, I think there is some um, there, there is obviously some spectrum of what incentives resonate with different types of people, but ultimately, yeah. right. If you're incentivizing them and have the reward system in place tied to the right objectives, they're going to complete them. And I think that that is a really interesting thing to bubble up amidst those four kind of core exactly. things. Exactly. Which is one of the key things that I basically say is, Hey, look, you are going to get you are going to basically get this connectedness coming in part because of incentive systems. Yeah. Which is, we want you to work this way together because we're going to pay you. That's right. This unit does well, not when you do well. <laughs> That's right. Now, I want to jump to a slightly different topic now, because obviously post Giant Step, you have an incredibly successful career. And as you say, your title changed from chief innovation officer, chief strategy officer, chief growth officer. Yeah. Those are all substantially different types of very yeah. executive leadership roles that have very different kind of mandates and objectives. And I'm very curious, you know, and, and maybe this is a, a, a symptom of your own curiosity, how it is that you are transitioning from one of those, you know, very large and critical focus areas to another. And, and what was driving you to shift your focus across the, the balance of your career? There were three factors. The first factor was the most important factor was I was doing things where there were gaps and Maurice Levy needed somebody to fill that gap. 
So in some cases, he gave me positions which I wasn't actually capable of doing. But he basically said, you go fill that gap till I figure out someone competent. Okay. But you're, you're good enough. Okay. You're good enough. And more importantly, when you're like lost, which you normally are always lost, you're going to ask me. This is trying to fake it. Right. right. And because you're not that good, the people around you are not going to think you're coming into their video. Right. Oh, interesting. So when I was the chairman of some of our digital assets, the CEO said, okay, this guy's a nice guy, but he really is not that great at this field. So he's not going to try to do what I'm going to do. He's just going to say, he's just going to keep Paris out of our hair. Sure. Right. Or he's going to basically, you know, help make what we're trying to do better. But his track record clearly is if he can, he'll fall asleep. So he's okay. <laughs> so that, 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 you know, is, is, is one. The second is there were some times where, so there was some time. So basically one was what the company needed to do. I went and filled. Okay. Right. The second is over time, uh, because I'd been around for long enough, no one had to explain like, who is this person? Right. Right. So when I showed up, I had two things, you know, sometimes your history can be working against you, but my history worked for me. So I had a history. So people could say, okay, this guy hasn't shot people in the middle of the night. He's people who have worked with him have tended to do really well. He's moved on. So he doesn't hang around and come, you know, disturb us. Right. Um, that was one. And the second is, it's clear that these people in New York and London and Paris trust him. Right. Which could be useful for furthering our cause because they may not know us. And if we build the right case and he delivers it, we may be able to sell it. So, right. so that allowed me to do a lot of different things, not because I knew how to do those, but I had this track record and this relationship with over the years with, with people. Right. And the third was just an interest. I like doing new things. Right. I get bored after two, three years. So, I'd, and, and literally I, I did pretty much everything I could in the company. And then my new thing was, I want to do something completely new outside the company, uh, but I want to do it in a way where I'm still loyal to the company. So I'm not, I'm still advise the company. I still, do all kinds of things, but I just want to do this, this thing. Right. Uh, and, and I was very clear. And that's the other thing, which is people said like, like, how is it that they still like send you to a significant client all by yourself? <laughs> right. So, so what do you mean all by myself? They said like, you could say anything to those people. You don't work for this company. Right. Uh, I said, why would I do something that hurts where I spent 37 years of my career? Right. Right. But I said, I'm not going to sell anything. I'm not going to sell publicists because if I, if, if my job is to sell publicists, I don't do it. Right. Okay. I go to help publicist clients answer a question that they think I know how to answer. And publicist basically says, we have the answers, but in addition, this guy will also provide you a perspective. 
Right. And because his perspective comes from a lot of years of experience. And by the way, he is not selling anything. So you can actually believe him. Right. Right. So I don't go in there and say, okay, now to do this, you go buy publicists. But I also never go into a meeting and people say like, does publicists suck? I said, no, they don't suck. They're fine. But I said, yeah. I don't work there. You go talk to them if they suck. But I don't think they suck. Okay. Uh, but that's not my problem, by the way, if they suck too. But, but while it's not my problem, I'm concerned. So please go talk to them because I would prefer that they not suck. Okay. Um, so clients, you know, they say, okay, you're not here to sell us anything. Uh, so I'm used sometimes by publicists to do that. Right. But it's a trusted relationship because I'm very clear. It's like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I want to do in this part of my career. So I'm very clear about my intent. Yeah. And this is how I'm doing it. And if there are mixed signals once in a while, which occurs rarely, it's once every three, four months, not even that once in six months, people say, how did this happen when you were supposed to do not this? Like I may show up at a client and they may not know that. Right. And, and I don't have to tell them that, but it was like, okay, because this client basically specifically wanted me to do this by, said so they, they would cover it and they right. didn't cover it. And they, so not that people say, you're not doing anything, Heidi, Heidi. I said this and the client said, they want to talk to you and they don't want me to talk to you. So they didn't talk to you. My problem. Not, I mean, obviously I should have checked with them. Right. But it's so much easier. So that's the whole thing. Like when you have goodwill, it isn't like you don't have cross signals and you don't piss off people. Okay. But the whole thing is that people don't go automatically into, oh, you know, this is like a troubled person doing troubling things. Right, right, this, right, right. What's this strange behavior all of a sudden? Well, so what I've, I, I think uh, even as you describe that and kind of the role that you've, you've carved out for yourself, obviously, uh, on the back of years of service and, and credibility, right? You, you talk about your, um, you know, the curiosity that drove you to want to do those different things over the last kind of a, a stretch of your career, but also, um, you know, wanting to have that clarity with and transparency with the client that you're there for your perspective based on your experience, not for any one, you know, holding group that you're representing. And I think that has continued to, to create value around what you're able to deliver. And I, I want to talk a little bit now about kind of all the other things you do. Cause as we chatted once before we got on the podcast, you talked about it being very critical to you to stay relevant, right? And that you didn't simply just want to fade away and be forgotten. And so this idea now as being an author, hosting a podcast, writing a regular weekly Substack, right? Being an advisor in many different facets and across many different dimensions for, for different industries. Like that is by any measure, a very successful transition to a post kind of traditional yeah. corporate career. How did you manifest that and, and, and kind of, uh, and, and do you recommend that folks start building towards something that consciously earlier in their career so they can make a similar yep. successful transition? So about five years ago, before I was writing my weekly thought letter, I was playing around on WordPress. I would write the occasional blog post. And my most popular blog post was after I finished 35 years at Publicis, I wrote something called 12 career lessons. Sorry, it was called 10 career lessons. Okay. Uh, and, and when I wrote it out, I said, okay, here's what you do in the beginning of your career. Here's what you do in your middle of your career. Here's what you do at the third stage of your career. Right. And I basically divided careers into three stages of um, 10 to 15 years each. 
So you could say maybe 12 years. So let's say if you join a company at 21, this takes you to 58. If you do 12 years, <laughs> it takes yeah. you to basically 66 if you do 15 years. Okay. Um, and so I did the 12 year thing and I said, okay, uh, I'm not coming to as the, I'm in the late stages of this particular stuff. Uh, what do you do at the third stage of your career? And to me, I wrote that and I said, you do one thing you do is you start unlearning stuff. Mm -hmm. That the world has changed around you. So you have to figure out how to unlearn and relearn. You have to learn new things. And that's why many senior people get into trouble. Just when they become really powerful, they start becoming a little out of touch with what's going on. Right. Because... <clears throat> What made them successful, the industry changes on them and they don't realize the right. industry changes. So this learning and unlearning and what to unlearn and what not to unlearn, right? What to learn, what, so that's one. So that basically meant that you, you have to continuously learn. So I said in your, you, I would suggest you continue to learn all career long, but definitely towards the end, you spend a lot of time, that's number one. And number two is you start thinking about a portfolio career that either because of, Income needs, wealth needs, health needs, time needs. Um, you might find it easier to combine different jobs than to have one job. Right. And the reason is this, which is when you are more senior or you know seasoned, if you've had a little bit of luck, you you have more financial uh, optionality. Sure. Right. Sure. Yeah. You've got a four and 18 month old. I have a 34 and 31 year old. So I don't have braces in education and all of that ahead of me. Right. Right. So that's right. I don't have getting a house and all of that ahead of me. And over time, because you, if you're successful, you've earned a little bit more money over years. And so the whole idea is you don't have to have a full-time job. Right. Or, sorry, you don't have to have a, a job that, you don't have to work full-time for a paycheck. You can work full-time, but you don't have to work full-time for a paycheck. Interesting. Okay. So this is the whole thing where I said, basically, I've stopped full-time employment. I'm fully employed. <laughs> right? Interesting, I'm yeah. more than fully employed, but I don't have a full-time employer. That's the right. only thing. I used to have a full-time employer. Now I don't have a full-time employer. Uh, and, and you do parts of it because getting income is always good. It shows you've got like a market thing and you can basically decide you want to do that. Part of it, you want to basically do risky things. Like I do stuff with startups and private equity. It could turn out to be good or it could turn out to be zero. Right. I, uh, I couldn't pay my college tuition for my kids with zero. So I had to earn money, but now whatever. Okay. Third is you have a place where you can give back. I run a foundation. I help people so you can give back, right, uh, to the community, to people in, in some way. Uh, and then the fourth one is you want to spend some time learning. Mm, like you're a new educator, right, so you can learn. So you learn, you give back, you take some risky things, right? And what that does is it also makes you much more accessible. So, right? I do stuff with companies. I do a little stuff with publicists. And, you know, when I do certain things for publicists, 
this it's a real job. I mean, it's I have <laughs> I do certain yeah, right. training. I do a yeah. thing, um, but you know, I, and I get something in return. But I'm very cheap compared to what I was when I was a full time employee. Interesting, right? And it works out because their whole stuff is we can get all of you, all your mind for these two, three small things you want to do, which you're really well suited for. Yeah. And, but we don't have to worry all this other stuff. You're like over the hill. We don't need you for that. Shit. <laughs> we don't have to worry about that. Okay. So it allows you to be much more hireable. So what I did is for the listeners of this, I then rewrote it when I was writing my Substack. I wrote it as 12 career lessons because I learned some more. But the most important thing I would say on managing your career is I wrote something about four weeks ago called Career Tools. And basically, it's four different tools that you need. And this is regardless of whether you're one year into your career or 50 years into your career. And the tools are a map to map out your career, a telescope to try to identify trends like I did, what was hot and where we a compass to make sure that you end up doing things that you are good at and gives you joy, right? So the direction, a compass is which way do you want to point? <laughs> yeah. And then a first aid kit, because in every career, you're going to basically be banged up once in a while. Okay. And how do you combine those four? And for a lot of people, that's the piece I would suggest you read. It's one of my most popular pieces because it also gives you an exercise on how to position yourself and how to deliver your, figure out your career compass, how to look at the different stages in your career. And what I've done is I've written it in a piece so you can spend 10 minutes reading it. And then I have eight links to other readings that I've done, or you can read all of it, which will take you about an hour and 15, 20 minutes. And it's, I think, the best career book anybody can have. I think that's a really eloquent and beautiful way at, at looking at the kind of critical things that you need to consider as you're mapping out or architecting what you want your your career to look like, right? And and it, it puts a really nice uh, a bow on it, even thematically, right? As you kind of assign each tool to kind of its purpose. And I think it's also a really nice summary kind of for the conversation that we've, we've had today. Um, you know, an incredibly, obviously successful career, an incredibly successful post-career that I find particularly aspiring because inspiring because, you know, you're talking about doing a podcast and here I find myself speaking to you on my podcast, yeah. you know, you talk about having a foundation and I have my own yeah. kind of nonprofit yeah. that I work with and, and have founded. And those things excite me. And I think for a lot of listeners out there, when they hear someone who's found success in their career over a long period of time, and they validate some of the decisions they're making uh, by listening and hearing those things bounce back, it's a very confidence inspiring thing. And so I'm excited for people to hear this conversation for that reason. Exactly. Yes. And the two other things, so thank you for having me, but the two other things, so, you know, is a lot of what I also now write is about the stuff that sometimes I used to wait for people can do simultaneously now. So you could, you know, a third of people, uh, uh, today have a, between two, a third of the United States workers in the United States and North America, which is where this is, have a other paying gig besides the one that they currently do. A third. And among people under 35 years old, that number is 75%. Oh, wow. 
Okay. So this whole idea of multiple careers that I talk about later in your career is more likely to happen. I've written a lot about in this career piece, I write about the future of work, how work is going, how we're all going to be gig workers, how we are re-aggregating things. So all of those are important to sort of look at. But thank you. Well, I mean, I'm excited. I have a long list of things I want to jump into on your Substack. I've already read through a number of them, and it was exciting to hear you kind of articulate some of those ideas on the conversation today. But again, thank you for your time, your openness to conversation, and I look forward to having you back on in the future. Absolutely. Thank you again, Peter. 